You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? This is one thing we do end up explaining every year, and I know it's tedious, but it's worth belaboring because I don't think that many people understand how it actually works. For a, a long time, in the early days of the Academy, there were, what, 10, 10 nominees, Holden? Was that the number? Yeah, there were, there were times when it was as many as that in the early days. And there were times in the very early days when there were like two or three nominees. Yeah, if you look at the first couple ceremonies, there was almost, you know, it was, it was just a few. So it's 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 ebbed and flowed, but uh, somewhere in the 30s, I think it, it stabilizes that five nominees for best picture for for many decades after that, up until uh, nine years ago or so. It was three the first couple of years, then it right. was five right. until uh, the middle 30s, and then it became 10 because it was 10 all the way up through uh, 41. Right. 41 also, all, all the way up. So it was about six or seven years where it was 10. And there was yeah. always five until this latest incarnation. And now it's variable. Now there can be up to up to 10. At least five. At least five, up to 10. It usually, the last few years, it seems like it's been eight or nine almost every and year. And it's been based right. on a percentage of votes. And that coincided with a switch to instant runoff voting, right? Where you rank your choices, and then if something doesn't get above a certain threshold, it's removed, and everybody moves up a slot until somebody gets a majority? Yes. Yes, it's apparently done that, but don't ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we have reiterated how it works, which I'm just going to assume we're going to have to do for a few more years before it settles in for everybody, let me run through the actual nominees. Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, and The Shape of Water. I'm listing those first because those have corresponding directorial nominations, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, the others are three billboards uh, outside Ebbing, Missouri, Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, and The Post. The reason I specifically mention the ones with corresponding director nominations is because, and we talk about this every year too, in, at least in the past, there was a very strong correlation between the two. Obviously, you know, there'd occasionally be a Best Picture nominee without a director nominee or vice versa, but it was rare, a lot of overlap. And since they moved to more than five nominees, there's been a, sort of an unofficial way of thinking of the director nominees as being the quote-unquote real nominees, right? The ones that would have made the cut if they were still at five. Is that fair to say? Uh, I guess the best director nominees have always been a little quirky through the years and with and get some odd choices in there. Well, one of the reasons you might be a little hesitant to uh, sign off on that is because it's been particularly hard to guess the correlation the last few years. You actually have, for anyone listening, uh, Holden has a tremendous post in the Best Picture thread uh, where he details how difficult it's been lately to predict uh, various uh, Best Picture awards and things like that based on previous awards, based on correlation with director nominees. So maybe a le- little less correlation than there used to be. But in this case, it seems like the biggest, most obvious omission here is, how do you pronounce this, Martin McDonough? Right. Yeah. Mr. McDonough, yes. I think it's McDonough. Yes, McDonough. McDonough. Very conspicuously not nominated for Best Director, even though Three Billboards is maybe not the favorite for Best Picture, but one of the favorites, and a pretty well-directed film. What do you read into that, if anything? I don't know. He was nominated for the DGA Award, which he didn't win, but he was nominated there. So he was in the mix there. Uh, they also have five nominees every year, and it's not often that they're exactly five for five matching up, but usually at least you know four, sometimes three, at least four of the nominees are the same in both uh, DGA and uh, Best Director Oscar. And this year he did; he was the one who got left off in favor of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Every uh, eligible voter nominates Best Picture, but only the the one you're you're correlated with in your uh, your guild, which we are assigned to, basically. If you're in as a director, you vote, you nominate directors. So it's the other directors in the Academy who voted for the five nominees. Say there's 150 directors. Those 150 of the 6,000 or whatever member is, those are the ones who nominated those five people. Now, the DGA, their body is those same 150 people, almost certainly, plus 
all the other directors who have never been gotten an Academy membership, plus directors of commercials and of television, because that's that whole guild. So, so it's, there's a huge number of directors voting for the DGA award compared to how many are nominating for the uh, the Oscars. Obviously, we have to talk about Jordan Peele here. I would not have guessed in a million years that he would be nominated here. He did fine work, don't get me wrong. I'm not surprised that Get Out was nominated for Best Picture because of the expanded field and because it was such an interesting, you know, fresh take on a horror film. If any kind of horror film is going to get nominated, it's something like this. But I'm just stunned that he was nominated for Best Director. It just seems like the kind of thing where you really just have to build up over time. It's not something where, you know, you'll sometimes see Best Actor or Best Actress winners kind of make a splash, right, come out of nowhere. It just doesn't feel like that happens with director as much. Well, I wasn't shocked. At least by the time the awards came around, it was pretty much a fait accompli. As far as the movie Get Out goes, yeah, it's uh, I think it's most it's mostly a writer's picture. But especially on rewatch, you can notice all the directorial touches put here and there and. That's what I noticed when I rewatched it. Yeah, we're getting into direct a little bit here, but Gerwig and Peel are both first-time directors, and they both get Oscar nominations, and they're the 17th and 18th in the history of the Oscar, going all the way back. The 17th and 18th uh, directors with their first films who got Oscar nominations. Wow. And two in one year. After, after 16 ever, two in one year. One thing I would say about the current voting and nominees – and also the critic. They're less about history and more about what's happening now and emotional responses to what's happening now. Yeah, you take the you tend to take the long view uh, of cinema. Well, I've been uh, hey, I'm a long I'm a long time. <laughs> I I, see, I think I see what you're saying here. Both of them are sort of zeitgeisty, right? It's obviously a woman director and writer, and an African American director and uh, writer, and maybe maybe both helped by the fact that they both wrote and directed. We've talked a little bit in the past about how you, we wonder sometimes if you get a little extra credit for you know pulling double duty there. Yeah, definitely in the last couple generations, a writer director for sure is uh, I think gets you a little extra push rather than just being a director. There aren't many, you know, when you think about it, there aren't many. I mean, Spielberg's one of the few kind of giant directors who sometimes takes a screenplay credit, and certainly every director, unless they're a hack, are, you know, helping with involved screenplay. Right. But as far as taking a credit, which is a whole different thing, which you got to go with the, 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 the uh, Writers Guild and get arbitration and all that stuff. So as far as, like, real directors who big directors who don't take credit. I mean, Scorsese and, and Spielberg are two of the kind of old guard who don't often take screenplay credit, but most uh, most filmmakers these days seem to be the hybrid. Even if they're only the co-writer or, you know, one of the three credited screenwriters on the project, they're definitely, uh, they're definitely working both. If I can use a uh, football analogy, it seems like the same way that quarterbacks are becoming quasi-offensive coordinators. It seems like we're moving towards um, a more holistic approach here. I mean, obviously, you have the old studio system where directors are more like hired hands, right? And they run the camera, and they're totally apart from the whole thing. And then we kind of move into the auteur theory and all that. It seems like more and more, the best directors are controlling every facet of the film from start to finish, if they can. Right. So you mentioned that we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with best director. That's true, although it's very intertwined with best picture, certainly. But let's talk a little bit more about Best Picture. The early favorite, if you can say that exactly, because we're kind of flying blind through the first sets of awards uh, before the nominations are announced, uh, seemed like it was going to be three billboards, but the at the actual odds maker sites, um, literally people placing bets on these in advance, The Shape of Water has jumped out into the lead, but Holden, I understand you're a little skeptical that it's actually going to take home the prize. I, I like the movie a lot, <laughs> but it is a weird movie. It's, it's a weird one. I really do think sometimes they think not only about what's the best picture of the nominees, but what's kind of the, what's going to play the best kind of in the short term and the long term. And the long term is harder to see. It's easy to see now why Wizard of Oz is beloved. And I think it's, you know, easy to understand why way back then, 1939, maybe they didn't say, this is the most amazing thing. We're going to hold this up as, as the greatest film that we did this year. So that generations from now, people look back and say, wow, look at that. It's easy to say that now because it's been, it's now it's a beloved classic. Is Shape of Water that kind of movie? It's just so dark and weird in all the great ways that Guillermo del Toro's work is dark and weird. <laughs> I just find it hard to believe that with those 89-year-olds that are still left in the Academy votership and kind of the people who have that eye towards, well, what is middle America and what is – is this is this what we're, the statement we want to make right now? That that movie is so weird and so dark that it's going to make it. There aren't many movies that dark and we I mean, it's – I mean, some of Silence of the Lambs is very dark, but it was also not – 
didn't have this kind of fantasy love story element. That's what makes it so weird that it's it's dark and brutal sometimes and has some disgusting things in it, but it's also this very old-fashioned kind of love story graft onto that, which makes it unique, and they may well name it Best Picture, but it's just so – the weird parts are so weird that if you've never seen it or you've seen it once or just kind of heard about it, you can go, what? What happened? I got to say, it's how remarkable it is that we're talking about three billboards as the not that dark and weird alternative, because yeah. by in almost any other group of films, it would be the dark, weird one. But Mark, you uh, you really like Shape of Water, from what I understand. You see, I, I know it's dark and weird, but I accepted that before I even turned it on. Once it's on, that stuff doesn't even occur to me. What does occur to me is how much it loves movies. It loves movies. There's many. There's all kinds of scenes where Richard Jenkins and uh, Sally Hawkins watch old movies, and he, in fact, teaches her history from old movies and uh, especially old '30s movies. I didn't take the romance. There was anything weird about that, even, even though you know everybody bestiality. Oh my God! Personally. When I started watching the movie, I thought that maybe the, an alien had crash-landed in the Amazon and they had brought him here. I didn't think he was, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon. But they talk about the creature kind of like you can't really see what sex it is. And then and then they find out, oh, oh, yeah, oh, so it's a he. Okay, well, I understood that personally because I always talk about a retractable. Retractables work? And retractables are no big deal. If you're trying to dispute the idea that it's weird, yeah, I'm, I'm unconvinced. Uh, no, so I'm not far. disputing that it's weird. Okay. I'm disputing that everything's weird, and everybody who watches it is weird. But if- no, I'm weird. I, w- I would say anyone who likes the movie has a capacity to like things that are weird. That's not. That's never been an issue. Obviously, if you like that movie, you get past all of that stuff. But you're saying for prediction purposes. Right. Yeah. For prediction purposes, I think there's enough well, I mean, conservative – in this world of, of what conservative – As far <laughs> as prediction be. purposes go, they should just forget about all the other nominations and just give yep. it the darkest hour then. If everybody is, is Olivia de Havilland who's going to vote, that's, that's the only movie that even seems halfway normal. It does, yeah, so Darkest Hour does feel kind of like a nominee from a bygone era. I, I mean, I actually, I really liked it. I thought it was really well made. And the thing that I've, I really like about even these kind of, I know we hate the phrase Oscar bait, but come on, if any film ever deserved it, that these, these kind of modern Oscar bait films is that they're just very shockingly entertaining. I mean, look, I... World War II is fascinating. Churchill's fascinating. It's inherently dramatic. It's maybe the most dramatic thing that's ever happened. But films, historical epics, can still have a tendency to drag, even when they're good, even when you can appreciate them on some technical level. But Darkest Hour is snappy. It is tightly edited. It is entertaining, um, even though it's a little over two hours and about a very droll period. And even though it's about war, it's not about the thrilling aspects of war because there's very little actual war in it. It's all about references to war and thinking about war. But I was very impressed. It felt very modern uh, and very entertaining for a period piece about Winston Churchill. It's all about the English English language. Mm, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Uh, the final line sort of echoes that too. So it's sort of like a, a it's a counterpart to well, first of all, Dunkirk, and a counterpart to the King's Speech, uh, which is also sort of about that about the importance of marshalling language uh, in defense of ideas and actions. Um, but uh, I, I just I was very refreshed by it, uh, which is not something I expected. I expected it to be feel a little bit like a chore, uh, like a lot of historical epics do, especially because it's. I mean, I I don't know the actual budget of it, but it seems like they could have made that for very little. A lot is done with sets and lighting. Uh, Speaking of which, I think the cinematographer took Darkest Hour literally because there is very little light in it, but just really well made and makes what could have been a very dry subject uh, surprisingly colorful. I think most of this year's movies are are relatively, I mean, best picture nominees are relatively low budget. I mean, relatively, yeah, 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 compared to past years. One of the things about Best Picture, that another thing that used to be more true in previous decades, going back a ways, is kind of the film with the most nominations was the one that kind of had the inside track for Best Picture, Best Picture, kind of the, the bigger awards. If, if all things being equal, if one film had six awards and the other one had 12 or 13 or 14, that one with 14 was probably going to prevail. And uh, that has not been true of late. La La Land tied uh, with Titanic and Ben-Hur last year as the most nominated. And of course, we know how, how that ended. And it was Revenant the year before had the most nominations and Spotlight got Best Picture. Of the 17 years of the 2000s so far, only seven times has the film 
film with the most nominations been the one that, that won Best Picture. And I don't know how that bodes for Shape of Water, which has the most nominations, but we'll see. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Lady Bird. Um, I've heard some people talk a little bit about being surprised that Gerwig was nominated for Best Director, which we touched on just briefly earlier. Not writing. Everyone seems to agree it's a very well-written film. But they're surprised by the direction, in part because it's not a very showily directed film. Very, what's the word I'm looking for? It's minimalist, I guess is a fair thing to say. Yeah, I think it's well-directed. But, uh, I mean, Gerwig goes back to this idea of the auteur, whether it's as flashy a, a direction as Christopher Nolan, you know, I mean, the scale of something like Lady Bird or Call Me By Your Name, or even Phantom Threat, even though obviously uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has a very strong visual style. I mean, there's, those are all smaller character driven movies more than some of the others, but it doesn't mean they're not well directed just because you can't say, Oh, look at, look at, look how he used this 70 millimeter lens and this shot on the beat. Well, yeah. Okay. Luckily as the the nominee show the nomination show that's not what the directors think of solely as directing even well, if kind of a layperson may and maybe some other maybe a grip who's in the uh, academy may say oh that's really well directed when he sees Dunkirk and not when he sees Ladybird but I think um, certainly actors understand directing that way for obvious reasons because that's the part of the of the game that they like the interaction with the director and the character stuff so i mean i think an actor which makes up the the biggest part of the uh, academy votership is likely to more likely to look at what greta gerwig did with a, a small character thing as opposed to what christopher nolan did with a big war thing with almost no dialogue and say boy greta gerwig did a really nice job i'd like to work with her you really can't tell in a particularly good film what's doing the heavy lifting. Is it the directing? Is it the acting? Is it the writing? When they all work in concert, they complement and enhance each other. And a film like Lady Bird makes that particularly clear to me because I can't really single out what's making it good and it feels insufficient to try to parse it out this way, even though that's the entire premise of the Oscars. Right. I, I can't remember if it was Hoffman or somebody who said, you know, you should get the five acting nominees to all do the same scene of, fam- of Hamlet and then let's judge who you think. But when you've got apples and oranges and kumquats and... Actually, I thought that was bogey. I think Hoffman might have called it back in one of his acceptance speeches. But yeah, it's it's you know it's it's ridiculous. I mean, and the same is for directing and cinematography. Any category you pick, they're all wildly different. Often and the same. So every once in a while, you get a year where they seem kind of homogenous and like, oh yeah, that's the same kind of thing. But often, more often than not, they're wildly different in in, the, in each category, which is makes it sometimes silly to sit there well how can you judge between these two and these three and these five but that's what the oscars do yeah only because you have to if the casting is exceptional do you give the actor credit for that or do you give the director credit for that i mean the fact that somebody might be a really good fit for a role that might not have anything to do with their talent it might have to do with their physicality or their voice or whatever and people like altman have always said that you know 90 percent of my job is casting so i mean yes (laughs) If you pick the right people, you don't have to direct them very much. You don't have to have fights with them or, or push them this direction or that way. You say, oh, that's that's who I thought the character is. They're doing great things I didn't think of, and here we go. But yes, if the director didn't pick them, you can put the cart before the horse in any of these categories in the same way. Let's uh, use that to segue over to Best Actor, because it seems like we have exactly that sort of uh, conundrum before us. Uh, Gary Oldman looks like the favorite in Darkest Hour, and he gives a tremendous performance. But it's also one of those performances where it's like, wow, he really inhabits this character. The makeup is good, and he he looks just like him, and you forget you're looking at Gary Oldman, which is very different than some of these other performances, like Timothy Chalamet in Call Me By Your Name. Uh, Obviously a very different kind of performance. You don't have an historical figure to compare him to. And I know there's a little bit of fighting on the forums about this, but it seems like it's going to be Oldman, right? Yeah. I would think so. Yeah, and it's a bit of a throwback performance in that sense. I mean, it's if you wanted to pitch this as, hey, Gary, would you like an Oscar? <laughs> I mean, it probably would have looked something like this. Uh, there's also you know, the kind of career achievement type push, which happens a lot in the acting. You know, it doesn't happen every year, but it does happen in the acting categories where it's not. You know, empirically, I, you might hold up six other Gary Oldman performances from his career and say, uh, this is so much more interesting. This is so much better. This is... This is this, this is that, but this is the one that it's also the kind of performance that if he had won three Oscars, the way Daniel Day Lewis had, I don't know necessarily that that would be the one that'd say, oh, this is the fourth. But when he hasn't won one yet, it's easy to say, oh, it's really good, and damn, how do we never give that guy an Oscar yet? 
Yeah, and and this is as good an excuse as any uh, to give it to him. Yeah, given the transformation and all that. Yeah, um, obviously the the interesting choice here is Daniel Kaluuya from Get Out. Daniel Day Lewis, of course, he's a mainstay. Denzel Washington, same thing. Very little chance of winning, though. I assume. Yeah, I mean, I had definitely Oldman's the favorite. Yeah, the only one I could really see. Yeah, I mean, it could. Chalamet had such a, a breakout year in performance. I could see him winning. Uh, in an upset, and Daniel Day-Lewis just because he's Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm-hmm. And he's also, he hasn't threatened, but he said that this is this is uh, going to be his last role. And if you believe that... I don't. I, I understand. I mean, lots of actors say that, but also there are very few actors like Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for actors to say, that's it, I'm done, I'm walking away. Him, I could see him saying... You know what? I'm going to go to Italy with my wife and my family, and that's it. I'm done. I'm going to make shoes for 20 years. Yeah, the only thing is because he's such a respected actor and has worked with so many people like P.T. Anderson and Scorsese and all these people, not to mention a thousand directors who want to work with him who've never worked with him. you got to believe people are still going to get him scripts. And even his wife, who's, who's made movies, if she writes a part for him, is he going to say – uh, honey, I'd love to do your movie, but you know I, I'm not doing that anymore. Uh-huh. Well, well okay. it might be a, a replay of a Phantom Thread story, you know. Uh, I, I don't want to put spoilers in here, but if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. The relationship between the, the main characters, hey, that could be replayed on the, one of their <laughs> vacations. Yeah. All right. One of the other major categories, and this seems like the one with the least amount of drama, maybe, Best Actress, it's Frances McDormand all the way, right? Uh, I mean, she certainly won all the all the major awards coming in, so uh, she would be the favorite, for sure. Frances McDormand is certainly beloved by her peers, which helps. Not that Sally Hawkins isn't respected, but, I mean, Frances McDormand is beloved. And in this age of, you know, the kind of making political statements on the sly and, and, and speeches and stuff, I mean, just the way they've reacted to what she said at the SAG Awards and the Golden Globes, her peers, you know, not necessarily the media, uh, what Fox News said about her, but what her peers said about her, you can see them absolutely again saying this is the one way this is the person we want up in this moment uh to say something yeah and i think like you mentioned in your review of three billboards basically all the what might be considered which a lot of the people of the site are considering it as some kind of social commentary on things that are happening those are kind of put in there but as a black comedy this could have been made in in any era (laughs) it's a it's a bar it's a martin mcdonough film I don't think it's any more political than anything he's done. There's a little, there's always social commentary in everything. So I don't agree with people who say that Three Billboards is all about the time we live in. I mean, it, it takes advantage of the time a little bit. But the substance of the film and in the wit level and everybody's character and acting, I mean, those are basically... Like I say, are just dark comedy elements written to a T, and it turned out the way he wanted, and at least the way I wanted. Uh, well, what I've noticed a lot about not just our site, but other movie sites and other movie people I talk to, is kind of the backlash against this is not from more conservative elements in society. It's a, it's from kind of the art house snobs who say this this movie stinks. Well, I know what you're referring to. I did see something. I saw a few editorials, or at least a few headlines, uh, that hinted at what the editorials were about. It basically seemed to take uh, a shot at what I mentioned, which is that there's sort of a, a window dressing element to it. It sort of touches on these really serious things, but doesn't really have a whole lot to say about them. Doesn't really take a stance. And for some people, for more progressive elements, doesn't hammer on them. Right? It doesn't. It doesn't uh, indict them uh, heavily enough or explicitly enough. And there's some complaints about it humanizing a racist character, things like that. So you're right. More of the criticism has come from that end of the spectrum. I mean, that's that's true. And there's the soft way kind of racism is, is used is, is kind of the, the way it's getting criticized and kind of higher critical circles. And, but I mean, I'm just talking about people who, who love Coen brother movies, who love dark quirky stuff, but are, are saying this one, I don't like. Hmm. And if I think if you didn't tell them it was a Martin McDonough movie or if they didn't know, I don't, it's just getting a weird backlash that I don't, I don't remember seeing in the last few years. I, I don't know. It's like the the people who like uh, Mad Max Fury Road all of a sudden saying, you know, as if they're, they're getting the hypercriticism of like, well, a truck can't really go that fast, holding that much weight. <laughs> like, wait a second, what are you even talking about? Or that you can pick apart three billboards uh, for this or that or, or this plot strand, but Shape of Water, sure that holds. I mean, like, I don't understand this distinction. Or Phantom between... Thread or idiot. Right. If you want to pick a movie apart, if you've decided you don't like it for whatever reason. 
you can pick it apart any movie, but the, the you know the it seems like the the stuff that's that three billboards is getting picked apart for the specifics when you get down to it about oh this the way the, the ending is or the way this character is handled that you could point to a thousand movies they like and they have no problem with the almost the exact same thing. So it's just weird how how it's just it's being hammered. In some court, it's a very vocal minority, it seems to me, that the ones that really hate three billboards are finding all kinds of very specific, minute reasons that it doesn't work for them, which is great. <laughs> but then it seems like, and therefore, it's not a good movie. Like, mm. if it doesn't work for you, I get it. That it's therefore not a good movie. Eh, I don't make that leap. This is something we've run into a lot over the last couple of years. We saw this, not we're going we're not going to get into Star Wars too much, don't worry, but we certainly saw this with films like Star Wars where people have a very gut-level reaction, which I think is fine by the way. And then there's sort of this attempt to post-hoc rationalize it with sorts of plot critiques and things like that, which like you say, you can apply to almost any film if you decide you don't like it. I think the solution here is just to let people know, hey, it's okay to have a gut-level reaction. You know, it's okay to have a gut-level reaction that's positive or that's negative, and it's okay to say, you know, I'm not sure if I can t- totally explain why I love or don't love this film, but I don't um you know that's this is what movies are supposed to be able to do is to hit us in the gut sometimes in ways we can't even articulate so uh i think it's okay uh, like you said that people have that reaction but i think they need to be honest about what reaction they're actually having it's not plot holes uh so we mentioned uh humanizing a racist character that character is played by sam rockwell who is the um i believe the front runner for best supporting actor uh also got a nomination woody harrelson for the same film and i feel a little bad for him uh because uh, holden you wrote a really great post about woody harrelson kind of reminding everyone of what a great career he's had uh, particularly the second half of his career um I feel bad for him because I feel like any other year he'd have a real shot here, but he's upstaged by his co-star. He'll get more nominations, though. He just he just works so much and does such quality work. I think. He'll, but as, as I pointed out, also, I mean, this it seems to happen less in the 21st century. But I mean, there's a long history of co-stars being nominated in the same category, whether for best actor, best actress, or supporting actor, supporting actress. And you know, sometimes the, the one of the co-stars wins, and and often they, you know, they kind of if you're looking back at it like oh i guess they cancel each other out that people love them both and some voted for one and the other but from the research i did it's happened 35 times since 1970 there have been double nominations from the same movie in the same category or and one of those was a triple for or two of them were triple for godfather movies and 17 of those 35 one of the co-stars won so it's you know just about right down the middle yeah i generally think the best performance tends to win no matter whether it's the same movie or not. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish, like, is F. Murray Abraham that much better than Tom Hulse and Amadeus? Who knows, but he's the one who won, even though they're both nominated. You can go back and forth like that. There's dozens and dozens of, of examples going all the way back to the history of the, the beginning of the awards. But yeah, I, I think Sam has been toiling, even though I think Woody kind of gets um, dismissed sometimes because of some of the sillier movies he's had and starting on the sitcom and all that kind of stuff. I think he's also been acknowledged enough that it's not a surprise, certainly to his peers, that Woody Harrelson is good, whereas Sam Rockwell has been so unrecognized by awards for so long and he's been so good that i think that's part of the push is it's not a lifetime achievement but like how did we never get this guy a nomination much less than a win before he's so good so i think there's part of that and that he seems to be you know by all accounts god knows what's gonna what revelation will come out (laughs) (laughs) yeah careful there careful you're tempting fate he seems like a nice guy (laughs) certainly his public persona at this point (laughs) until we get other evidence he seems like a very nice guy he's very well liked and that does go a long way not that an asshole can't win an actor award people are like god that guy's a jerk but i'm i will never work with him again but he did a really good job in that movie there's no doubt about that but i mean certainly it doesn't hurt to be well liked and a nice dude so you said never nominated. Yeah, the the moment it really crystallized for me uh, how unappreciated he was was a li- while ago in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I thought, oh my god, what does this guy have to do? Yeah. Even though that's kind of a bummer of a movie, I actually bought it and have watched it like six times. It's weirdly rewatchable, and it's because of him. And for me, the one is Moon. Not that I don't like Confessions, but Moon is just it's such a kind of tour de force of of technical performance and emotional performance and it's just i mean i know it was couched in in genre which sometimes awards have difficulty going for but that was just like if they're not gonna nominate him for that i mean come on well the one the one uh performance of his i love the most is box of moonlight 
Yeah, that was amazing. Mark and I have been fans for a lot. I mean, those, those, some of those early indies he did where he kind of b- – b- uh, kind of leading up to Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which is kind of him finally getting a starring role in a, in a bigger studio picture, are really, really good. I mean, Lawn Dogs, I just love Lawn It's just a weird little movie, and he's so good in it. And Box of Moonlight, just I mean, like he stole that thing from Totoro, who was like John Totoro like, in his full like force at that point. Full, the height of his powers. Yeah. yeah. A few years after Barton Fink, and he's just like cruising and boy does he steal that movie from him just because he's just so damn good and just but, but they really, do work well characters. together oh yes for sure he's, he's just one of those characters who's just when he's on screen even if he's doing nothing just in the background he's just like god you, you, you it's one of those your eye just goes to him he's just he can be sitting there listening to the other character in the background and you're like what is he doing over there he looks really interesting and then i think the the one that uh, kind of introduced in the mainstream was uh in uh, Galaxy Quest, mm-hmm. or another yeah. one where they've got Alan Rickman there and and Sigourney Weaver and some people doing some great work, and just that the great part of the of the guy who knows he's disposable is about to die is just he's hysterical every second he's on the screen, and it's been like that his whole career, whether it's, whether it's been the lead or or a supporting performance. So yeah, I think with all that all that kind of residual greatness that has never been recognized before, plus the effect he's I mean he's really good in the movie, and the people who don't hate it like the movie a lot. I think, yeah, it's, it's going to be his year. And the one besides besides uh, Woody Harrelson, who kind of loses out in that, is uh, Willem Dafoe, who also has had a great career and was, I don't know if you saw Florida Project, but it, I mean, he's 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 always good, whether he's in something weird like a Lars von Trier movie or, you know, even something like Spider-Man, he can just, he, he adds something to it, and uh, he's really, really good in that. I loved his performance in that, but you know, it comes in a crowded year, and this is Rockwell's turn. God bless him. Yeah, this seems like a, a really potent category. There are three or four here that really feel kind of deserving, um, and it's a shame only one of them can win. I do want to echo what you said about Sam Rockwell and Galaxy Quest. I was going to say the same thing. Even more impressive than some of his you know, best leading performances is how much he's done with tiny performances. I, for, for crying out loud, he was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and had like three lines, and he was really good in that scene, for crying out loud. He does so much with so little. But the only one that sticks out here, Christopher Plummer, all the money in the world, and for anyone who doesn't know, although you probably do, replaced Kevin Spacey at the last minute. And you had an interesting point about this, Holden, that nominating him for this is sort of a way of disparaging actors' prep work. Right, the, the, the actor, yeah, I think, so, which must mean they're they're just giving him an attaboy for stepping in so late. Because he's playing a historical figure, a mysterious, you know, interesting historical figure, especially if he was a lead of it, I mean... There's very relatively very few scenes in the movie, which is why they were able to uh, reshoot it quickly. But, you know, if Daniel Day-Lewis was playing this part, you would assume he did months and months of research and, and did all kinds of things and found every scrap of audio he could find of, to get this performance note perfect. And here Christopher Plummer comes in, like, literally like, two days after they sent him the script, like, can you do this? Like, okay, uh, here I am. What's the line? <laughs> and he does it and, and, and he's Christopher Plummer he's he's very uh, compelling but you know he certainly didn't do any research on it he certainly didn't study the script for weeks and months much less to do deep dive on, on who Getty was as an individual he might have been uh, prepping a Getty passion project for a couple <laughs> decades on the sly yeah uh, but no you're right so so it would say that even if it were just totally fictionalized, but you're right, it's also an historical figure, it's about a real event, so that really emphasizes the lack of prep work, because there is actually something pre-existing to study. Right. Yeah, it really does seem like they're they're just saying, wow, thanks for stepping in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the last minute, what a pro you are for doing that, but it can't be for what they say they're usually rewarding for, which is kind of the, the, the deep work that the actor's doing, and he couldn't possibly have done any deep work on this. Best Supporting Actress, uh, everything I see says Allison Janney and I, Tanya, uh, is going to take this. Um, and, you know, pretty unappreciated in her own right. She obviously had a, a – most people know, know her best, I guess, from the West Wing. That's where I first was introduced right. to her, and she's tremendous in that, of course. Uh, and, of course, Octavia Spencer gets another nomination. This is three now for her, although I was shocked to hear it was only three. I had it in my head that it was five or six or something. <laughs> it seems like it because she's in so many movies these days. She's so popular that, you know, I think she was in four movies last year. Uh, so she's just worked so much that it seems like she must have had – what did she have, like 12 nominations by now? No, just three. But <laughs> my, my guess was literally five or six, and I looked it up, and it was three, and I was stunned. Uh, actually, just yeah. the other day, I saw her in an episode of Malcolm in the Middle I was rewatching from yeah. years ago. She plays a cat 
cashier, and what do you know? She steals the scene. But yeah, Alice and Janney all the way, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I really like uh, Laurie Metcalf, but and yes. they're, they're both yeah. playing kind of mothers who are, well, on the surface, the, the mother and lady bird is, is not always supportive. It's judgmental, but you know, I, I don't think there's any, if you've seen the movie, there's any doubt that she loves her. Whereas Alice and Janney gets to play one of those great cinema things of, of the monstrous mother. <laughs> Toddlers and tiaras. Kinda, the top, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's been... Uh, and you know, proud of it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, relishing it. I mean, they're, you know, Oscar can you know make elevate mother performances like you know sandra bullock in the blind side and brenda fricker in my left feather who are kind of these saintly and possibly wonderful people and then there are people like you know piper laurie and carrie and just last year naomi harris and moonlight and then you know, a couple of the winners recently melissa leo and the fighter and especially monique and precious who were just you know the worst mothers you could ever want to imagine and hopefully never have to really deal with in your in your life in your personally your personal life or even just run on up against them in, in society and she certainly fits into that as, as this really horrible stage mother who also just just runs her down horribly just does not seem to have an ounce of what we, any of us would identify as love for this person and uh, is never shy about expressing her lack of love. So it's a great part. It's, it's fun to play Which, and she gets some great lines and she's very funny, especially in the, in the kind of current day. Uh, the, if you haven't seen the movie, it's set up. They got kind of more or less current day interviews with, with the participants and then kind of flashing back to, to the events uh, from childhood all the way up to the, to the Olympics. And yeah, in the present day ones, she's um, <laughs> in a bathrobe in her house with a, with a chatty parakeet on her, on her shoulder as she chain smokes. And, and it's, it's really, they're really funny scenes. And the, and the funny thing is that at the very end of the movie, kind of in the credit sequence, you see brief clips of, current day interviews with the actual participants and she's very close including the parakeet thing I mean, she does she does a really excellent job screenplays screenplays are worth talking about the thing i always like to say again it seems like every podcast there's five or six things we always have to say and one is that oh best original screenplay is the fun category this is where you get the being john malkovich's or whatever that doesn't really work this year because normally you'd see something like maybe get out or lady bird or The Shape of Water getting nominated here, but those are nominated all over the place. So it's just The Big Sick. The Big Sick is the unusual one among the unusual ones. Uh, no chance of winning, but it's fun. Oh, I like that movie a lot. Yeah, it won't, it won't win, but I'm, I'm glad they got the nomination. Good for them. Yeah, and kind of a coincidence, because in my mind, Get Out is a semi-sequel to Being John Malkovich. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. There is sort of a thing there, isn't there? Yeah. Um, I'm not surprised. So I said I was surprised earlier that Jordan Peele was nominated for Best Director. Definitely not surprised he's nominated for Best Original Screenplay. I mean, it's still a little out there, but um, just a really uh, exceptional kind of tight story. I guess the only complaint I could level, and spoiler alert, is that it ends a little happier maybe than I thought it was going to, because it could have ended in some especially dark ways that would have felt thematically appropriate. Yeah, the original ending ending ended that way. Yeah. <laughs> I like the triumphant ending. I I, I, I don't know. I, I bought into it. I like him. I like him getting away. It's good. I So I'm a little sad that I don't think Greta Gerwig is going to win this uh, because I think she might deserve it. But I guess this, instead of director, this is where McDonough is going to get his due. He better. Yeah, I, I don't know. Jordan Peele did win the WGA award, which is Yeah, McDonough was not, was not up for the award because he's not in right. the WGA, so – but I mean, when you look at it, I mean, if Shape of Water or Three Billboards are theoretically the front runners for Best Picture, that means kind of the the if you give this as well, okay, we're not voting for you for Best Picture, but we're voting for you for this. I mean, that means Get Out, Lady Bird, and Three Billboards or Shape of Water, which everyone doesn't win, could all get that sentiment here, like, well, I'm not going to vote for Lady Bird for Best Picture, I'm not going to vote for Best Director, but mm, it's a good screenplay, so you could say the same for Peel, you could say the same for McDonough. And you can say the same for Dottoro. They're all writer-directors, so they're all kind of in that position. So there's no favorite for me in that sense, since they all could claim that same that same kind of space. And I never vote that way. Of course, I don't either. Take my vote, though. I keep trying to give it to them, but they won't accept. <laughs> I keep mailing my ballots into the Academy, and they don't count them for some reason. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that, because it seems like we sometimes we can argue one way or the other. We could 
argue what you just said, which is that, well, we're not going to give them the big prize, so let's give them this Oscar instead. But sometimes we also treat this as a leading indicator. If you're looking for an upset, whether or not an upset is possible in Best Picture, sometimes you get an early hint based on who wins for Best Screenplay, too. Right. Yeah. Could go either way, right? Uh, But if you are holding out for some kind of shocker, this could be an early indicator of something amiss uh, at the end of the night. If Lady Bird wins Best Picture and it wins Best Original Screenplay, you're going to say, oh, we should have known when it won Best Original Screenplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Upset win. But, you know, if Three Billboards wins, uh, yeah, who knows? It, well, one that we can, it's one of those things you know, like by hindsight. But on the other hand, an adapted screenplay, it's exactly what we're talking about. That Call Me By Your Name is the only Best Picture nominee of those five nominations. And so it's definitely going to get it as, okay, look, we're not going to vote for Best Picture for this, but what a great story it is. What a great, not only story, but story that the movie kind of broke through. And, yeah. And, and to it, tell you the truth, it undoubtedly is a sensitive screenplay, but all the, all the sensitiveness to the movie is presented, I think, in the direction and the acting. Right. I mean, hey, that's that's what I got out of it. So this is J- James Ivory wrote uh, of Merchant Ivory. If you were a fan of right. uh, art house cinema in the in the eighties and nineties, uh, James Ivory wrote the screenplay. It's kind of one that had been in his trunk. It's been a, one that a personal story that he's really was attracted to for a long time, and he didn't get it made back in the Merchant Ivory days. But uh, but you're right. I mean, the, what makes the movie special, I think, is not the screenplay necessarily, but the way it's shot and the way it's acted. So it does. But it does kind of look like room uh, room with a view. It does. Yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly one of those that makes you want to go to that place and and book a room and never come back uh, to find a villa somewhere and just live the rest of your life there. It's gorgeous. But uh, yeah, as a travelogue, it's 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 you can't do much better than that. So, I mean, I think for all those reasons, I mean, I think Calling By Your Name is going to win that one pretty easily. When we've done this in the past, I remember thinking almost every year that the better films and the films with more nominations seemed like they were coming from adapted because they were so often coming from novels or older films or something like that. This year, it feels like it's it's lopsided the other way. All the better films are in best original screenplay, which I just it doesn't feel like it's been that way in years past for for one reason or another. No, I think those things are cyclical. But yeah, this, this year for sure is definitely. I mean, just look at those Get Out, Lady Bird, uh, Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. Just those four. I mean, those are all original screenplays. So I mean, this is for this year in the cycle. It's definitely. Uh, yeah, the the kind of literary adaptation and the adaptations of plays like last year with with Denzel and uh, Fences. Fences. God, it's blanked on it. Yeah. Well, it's not a very memorable title, so you're yeah. forgiven. So yeah, I mean, there there are years when it's it's that kind of thing. It's a very heavy liter- literary pedigree, and and some years it's the original. For me, the originals are more usually more interesting. So I I think it's an interesting year. And if if Lady Bird or Get Out somehow were to shock everybody and get through and uh, somehow win Best Picture, I think it'd be great. I mean, I I'm happy with. All, I mean, all four of those are really my favorite. You know, they were. I think all four of those: Get Out, Lady Bird, Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. So I don't really. I personally like Three Billboards the most of the four. But if any of those four win Best Picture and some other major awards, I'm like, I'm I'm good. I liked all four of those movies. So that those four have kind of risen as the the front runner, the ones that are kind of realistically in the mix. I'm good with all of those. Yeah, and the thing that really strikes me looking at the nominees there this year, Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture, is just the breadth of types of cinema across them. There's a horror film, there's a small dramatic character study, there's a romantic comedy, there's a fantasy film, uh, there's a dark comedy. It's just, it runs the, the gamut, really. And not only that, but that's the, the negative side of that is what we discussed earlier about comparing apples to oranges. It seems so weird that these films have to compete for one prize because they're all over the place, but it's also what's great about cinema is to look at one category and see all these things are movies, you know, all these things are in this category together. There are some years, I feel like, in the mid-90s where you had five darkest hours. Um, I don't know if it's a blip, but this year in particular, it seems just so diverse. Yeah, you can imagine... 10, 20 years ago where a movie like The Post would have been the prohibitive favorite, just kind of, kind of subject, subject material, who the director is, who the actors are. And here it's just like, yeah, all right. <laughs> it's not even really in the conversation in a realistic way. Yeah, right. No, we this is the first we've mentioned it, even though it's nominated for Best Picture. There's just nothing to say. The only other thing worth mentioning in either of the screenplay categories, I think, is Mudbound. Four, I think, nominations. Uh, a Netflix film. 
That's pretty significant. You're going to see uh, a bit more of that. I, I know that they were the first streaming service to get any kind of nomination. I think it was for The Square four years ago. But this is, you know, this is the first film of theirs to be kind of recognized in a, a more mainstream category. Pretty big step forward. I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the next 10 years. Yeah, and the big, the big Sick was a... Amazon, right? I think it was Amazon. Are they Amazon or Netflix? I think, I think uh, Big Sick was Amazon Studios, Mudbound Netflix. That's right. Yeah, yeah. they've been making their inroads the last couple of years, too. So, yeah, it's definitely going to go that way. And now that, you know, Scorsese's big, uh, the Irish... Yeah. De Niro, it's a Netflix movie, so we'll see. After Bright was snubbed, they're going to take another swing at the Oscars <laughs> with Scorsese's <laughs> Irishman, yeah, which I'm very much looking forward to. So out of all the technical awards that we haven't discussed, uh, most of them we're probably not going to. We're not going to be labor, sound editing, and sound mixing again. You can Google the difference if you want. There are the exact same five nominees for both. Uh, that tells you all you need to know. But Best Cinematography is something we definitely have to talk about. Roger Deakins, Holden. Roger Deakins. What is this? His 14th nomination? Uh, yes, I think that's right. And he has never won one. Right, never. And if you read, if you read through his filmography of some of the movies, you think, oh my God, how did he not win? From Shawshank Redemption and a lot of the Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Uh, so many nominations. He's not quite the most nominated person. In this but he will be if he lives another couple decades. And he's won the uh, American Society of Cinematographers Award, you know, their top award of the year, a few times. And he's always had corresponding Oscar nominations and never won for whatever reason. So whatever the cinematographer – I mean, there's no – I mean, he's already won the um, Lifetime Achievement Award from that organization. So, I mean, he's – there's no doubt he's – probably the most respected cinematographer working today if he's definitely the top three and certainly other directors and other cinematographers anyone who appreciates that kind of stuff knows he's i mean he's almost peerless i mean he's definitely one of the best working and that he doesn't have this weird footnote this kind of susan lucci syndrome which happens to people from time to time where they they get nominated time and time and time again and for whatever reason don't break through and now he's here with uh, the Blade Runner sequel, which, you know, it did not get nominations like Arrival did last year for Best Picture and Best Director. So it's just, you know, it's got a couple of technical awards, including this one. Is this going to be the one that, I mean, the one that really shocked me was Assassination of Jesse, Jesse James was also the same year of No Country for Old Men. And he was double nominated. And No Country for Old Men won Best Picture and won Best Director and won Best Supporting Actor. And you're like, boy, with the momentum, he's finally going to win. And he didn't. Jeez, <laughs> who does this guy have to kill? So I, I don't know. I mean, it would kind of be interesting for him to win, not in the year where his film is one of those that's got 14 nominations or 10 nominations, but this has got a few technical ones. Uh, I mean, it's it's good work. I mean, he doesn't ever do bad work. <laughs> He's Roger Deakins. And even the people who didn't like Blade Runner, the Blade Runner sequel, which you know divided people, even who like who are in love with Blade Runner, you can't deny it's a great looking movie. Yeah. So we'll see. I'd like to see him finally win one. I wonder if they're victims of their own talent. You know, someone becomes a mainstay and you think, well, they'll be back. You know, he's going to be back nominated next year. This other film, though, this is the breakout. This is the person we might never see again. You know, this is the movie of the moment kind of thing. Deacons, you know, you're going to get five more chances, but you can only say that for so long uh, before you don't have any more chances. Right. Yeah. So we'll see. And the other kind of notable thing from this category was that uh, Rachel Morrison, who did uh, Mudbound. Yes. Yeah. She's the first woman ever nominated. And no woman has been nominated from, from the American Society of Cinematography either so she's really the first kind of female cinematographer to get this level of nomination which is great because there's some really good female cinematographers been working been working a lot the last especially the last decade or so doing a lot more work and so i mean it's great to see yeah, we talked a little bit last year about how even when uh, you eventually achieve some kind of parity across race or gender lines that, you know, some of these technical awards in particular, these are lifetime skills uh, so that even when you start to improve there and become more diverse, it lags. There's another decade or two before those people sort of work their way up through the system and start getting recognized at the highest level. But we might be starting to see that now. I would be very surprised if we don't start to see a lot of other women nominated in this category over the next decade or so. I know uh, someone pointed out the other day that Ryan Coogler, director of Creed and Fruitvale Station and Black Panther, I think he's exclusively worked with uh, female cinematographers. There have been a couple of uh, nominees of, of color in cinematography the last last handful of years, too. So that's good. I mean, diversity everywhere is good. And, and certainly, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, this has been a white man's game for... <laughs> yeah. Cinematography more than even movies? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, uh, actually, and I, I read a really interesting article just a few months ago. It was uh, there's some show. It was it's ex- almost exclusively African American on HBO or something. Uh, in, is it Insecure? Yeah, that's it. And the cinematographer of the show was talking about how cinematographers in general have had to sort of relearn parts of their craft to light African American faces differently yeah. than white faces. Yeah. Different colors complemented. I thought that was fascinating and makes a lot of sense once you hear it, but doesn't occur to you before. Right. Do you guys care to say anything about editing, uh, best editing or best visual effects? Yeah, I don't know. No, not really. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to be honest. You know, when I followed movies a little more superficially, I was always really interested in, in visual effects. I had the same thing when I was younger. Like, I remember the first Academy Awards I remember watching was the uh, 78 ceremony for the 77 awards and the reason why was because I was 7 years old and Star Wars had overtaken my life <laughs> yep. and I wanted to see all the I knew Star Wars was a bunch of awards and like I heard it could win Best Picture and I didn't even really know what Best Picture was yet but like okay I'll watch that and of course in all those technical categories for visual effects and winning all those you're like yeah Star Wars is kicking butt man and then of course by the time it gets the best picture no but it is kind of a those kind of categories are the way that those genre films and those kind of the more popular films the films that do make 400 million dollars and not the ones that make 50 million dollars those are those where they get the nominations so those are kind of an entryway for the more casual fan the younger fan who doesn't see Call Me By Your Name or even Three Billboards but they saw Beauty and the Beast five times that's the reason for them to tune in and see oh it had to do for costume design production design that kind of thing so that's I mean those are always I like those categories but yeah they don't tend to be linked to the best picture very often yeah, and the other only other example where you're going to see those kind of blockbusters is maybe Best Animated Film. Looks like Coco's the favorite here. I saw that, uh, Coco. Um, the only thing I want to say about Coco is that I was just really pleased to see a children-slash-family film. We never know what to call them exactly, but you know what I mean. That tackled death. It didn't just tackle death, but it was almost a little morbid. You know, there's half the characters are skeletons. Yeah, it's a little it's a little dark and a little grim, but I love that about it. It's something that people have said a lot over the last, like, 10 or 15 years, which is really resonated with me and it really made me go yeah yeah you're right is that kids films when I was growing up or people in their 40s and 50s were growing up they were creepy they were weird because kids kind of like to be scared too you know Uh, obviously kids aren't going to watch slasher films they're not going to watch horror films but they'll watch something like Labyrinth you know or The Dark Crystal or just something kind of weird and strange and and deep and dark and at a certain point those um, rough edges have sort of been sanded off so any even slight nod back towards that kind of uh, children's film uh, is always very welcome at least to me you mean like back to uh, the real Hans Christian Andersen and yes stories and the yes, real yes Grimm's fairy tales I mean what do you want Grimm yeah Grimm Grimm I mean come on well that's 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 pretty, pretty well represented in Shape of Water yes yeah Shape of Water almost feels like it would have been a children's film 20 years ago but now it's an adult film yeah. retractable Wow them in the end. You got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wow them in the end. And you've got a hit.